Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, McDevitt is here. I'm here. Murph is with me. Hello there, all. Hi there, Kieran. Are you talking about yourself in the third person now? I messed up my intro again, and I thought I'd barrel on through without anyone bringing any attention to it. (laughs) Owen doesn't like it when you uh, point out out Owen's flaws. Owen really does not like that. that. Owen's going to continue by uh, asking you, asking both you two and our beloved listeners, think of your favourite sports team. You You don't have to tell us. Um, okay. Just think of it in your head, your favourite sports team, who you've always loved. Imagine them winning the biggest prize in their sport. Okay. Very biggest prize, World Cup, whatever it is, it's international. Yep. Think of the victory parade through the streets after this glorious triumph. Okay. And place yourself right up on top of that double-decker bus. Or, in the case of US Murph, rolling along on a float as part of the World Series victory parade of the San Francisco Giants. Just trundling up Market Street there in San Fran, presumably waving regally at the mm. millions in the street. And all the while... Getting paid for it. Yes, Brian Murphy broadcasting from the World Series that parade. That sound pretty good. I'm, I'm sure grudgingly he accepted that particular role. Mm. Like, um, it, it would be like, say, if Ken got the gig that Joe Duffy got in the Phoenix Park that time. Except if Ireland had won the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, instead of being knocked out on penalties uh, <laughs> in the round of 16. Do you think they'd get me to do that? Well, of course they would, Ken. Well, I mean... Would he have come up with a phrase, a coined a phrase as legendary as... DDD, Damien Duff Dizziness. Well. As Joe Duffy did on that, on that well, stage. Do you remember I mean, that? Listen, Ken's a young broadcaster. Maybe in a couple of years, you know, he could, um, he could, he's, he's, he can get, build himself up to such a height that that sort of thing's just normal. The issue with that, though, yeah. the issue with... Uh, Damien Duff Dizziness. Yeah, in, in 2002, uh, sorry, yeah, 2002, is yeah. The, well, not so much 2002, 94 in particular, the players thought they'd completely bombed 
Then yeah. they, had to, they had to come back correctly. to a hero, possibly correctly, and they, they had to come back to this hero's welcome. Yeah. Mm. Which really, they were, oh, do we have to do this? So that's not great. If you're part of that, working at it or just involved in it in some way, it's a little different from being in the middle of a World Series triumph. Yeah. Ken would have uh, given them the old uh, Stephen Keshi treatment. Good. <laughs> in front of 250,000 people in the Oh, really Frank. grill Damien Duff on yeah, why yeah. they failed to beat Spain. Yeah. Ask Mick McCarthy about Saipan. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's the sort of entertainment that we're talking about here, you know. Um, but no, I mean, that does sound like a reasonably good gig, all right. I mean, I don't think it'd be difficult to motivate yourself for that oh, particular day of work. We're going to catch up with Brian today. Now, if being part of your team's greatest moment isn't a big enough example of living the dream, what about designing and starring in your very own computer game? We've got the legendary skateboarder Tony Hawk on the show today of Tony Hawk's pro skater fame. Okay. Not to be confused with Skate Crazy. Uh, early 90s game more of a actually mid to late 80s game in the Commodore 64 by the time Tony Hawk came around uh, with his game in 1999 mm. graphics had moved on to a point where you could tell what you were doing Yeah, um, but, I mean, he, but I did enjoy many hours playing skate loading up the tape deck for Skate Crazy and waiting the 15 minutes for it to start up <laughs> Skate Crazy it's, it's one that slipped under the radar for me Owen so what did you do like is it kind of waggle the, the stick of the, um, oh, the joystick? Jo- joystick originally Ken uh, when I first got a Christmas present when Santa was kind enough to bring me a uh, Commodore 64 yeah. Santa neglected to bring a joystick in the early days so I was relying purely on the keyboard <laughs> I thought you were going to say you had to try and get you know skate around using mind control Sp- <laughs> just, just <laughs> yeah. watching this this thing sitting on the start um, line like no space bar was a key space bar was well, was obviously oh, yeah. a key but was the key key I mean I was the one that pretty much did everything in those Commodore mm. 64 games see I actually did all of my gaming uh, on a PC. Never actually had a console. But I mean, it was fine. You know, I used the keyboard. Uh, there was no joystick. But uh, to me, I'd, it didn't feel like I was missing out. Um, yeah. Doom, your Dooms, your... Uh, Duke, uh, your Prince of Wolfenstein Persia. 3D. Wolfenstein 3Ds of this world. No yeah. Prince of Persia, no. Prince of Persia, yeah. Yeah, had that. Uh, sensible Soccer, of course. Well, yeah, the daddy of them all, Sensible Soccer. But anyway, we should, we should probably get back. I mean, computer games are a big thing in all of our lives. So. If you were to design your own video game, yeah, mm-hmm. or if you if you if you were to design a video game for Ken, he's going to be the yeah. star of it. But you're the mind behind it. What would you? What sort well, of I mean, game there's you know? there there are football games, you know, like FIFA 2015, where you get to be players. Football yeah. manager, where you championship manager, where you get to be a football manager. But and yet, there's still no game for football journalist. So a football journalist. Headlines and deadlines. <laughs> 2016. Yeah. Uh, with Ken Early, um, you attend press conferences. You get yeah. up in the morning and and run to the train station. Yep, Couple you have minutes, to cycle. Yeah. So I mean, there's you know, it's it's you're you're not in like just one staid environment. You're yeah. constantly moving taxi drive uh, taxi journeys with uh, taxi drivers who want to talk football with you. How much do you reveal? That's yeah. a, that's for you to decide. Who do you support? Who do you support? Yeah. You get asked that. Ken, yeah, exactly. you fictional Ken, virtual Ken gets asked that a lot. Um, yeah, you, you essentially you get you get on different kinds of transport, taxis. Yeah. You have to keep a receipt each time. Yeah, if you lose a receipt, then that's you. You're you not, lose you're points. Not, yeah, and then of course you ascend all the way. What's the all the way to the top when you become? I don't know. Sports actually. editor <laughs> of the Irish Times. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we wouldn't. Uh, yeah. I know, I, I, yeah. You wouldn't want to speculate as to where, that, that, where the peak of the industry yeah. lies. Absolutely lies. Yeah. But I love, no, I really like this game. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the peak is to become like kind of Gabriella Marcotti that features on you know, some ITV football coverage. Anti-fragile. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. I, I'm not Slight issue with this game. If you're looking to really penetrate the wider market, I'm not sure if you would do it. I'm sure Gabriella Marcotti would love this game. Jonathan Wilson would love this game. Mm. Yeah. 
would anybody else besides those two men love this game? Well, you never know. I mean, that's 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 the that's the mystery. On, I mean, there's all um, you know, there's a lot of people out there, and the and frankly, we have no idea what most of them want. Maybe they don't know themselves until exactly put before them. That's the thing. That's exactly it. They literally didn't realize they wanted it until they started playing it. You know, Henry Ford once said that if you ask the people, they'd have asked for faster horses. Oh, yeah, but he built right. them carriers instead. Just remember that, on. Yeah, we'll Just remember that, that yeah. when when I'm sitting on a massive pile of cash after the three week debut of football journalist with the picture of Ken Early on the box, then come back, come back. There's to already ask a, me there's that. already a little C for copyright beside that. Yeah. Or TM. Don't any of you Web like. Summit dorks <laughs> steal my idea, all right? That's First all I'm saying. Up, we're talking Ireland, South Africa. The big debate all week was who would fill Brian O'Driscoll's number 13 shirt, Jared Payne or Robbie Henshaw. Murph has a team sheet right in front of him here, and the slightly surprising answer is that it's Jared Payne, but with the inclusion of Henshaw inside him. They said it couldn't be done. At the expense of Gordon Darcy, the team in full there very quickly. Rob Kearney, Tommy Bowe, Jared Payne, Robbie Henshaw, Simon Zebo, Johnny Sexton, Connor Murray. Not that quickly. We need to, okay, that's the back line. Jared Payne and Robbie Henshaw are in a pairing. Uh, They're they're the original odd couple on. And then it's Jamie Heaslip, Chris Henry, Peter O'Mahony, Paul O'Connell as captain with Devin Toner in the second row, Mike Ross, uh, Sean Cronin, Jack McGrath, and the replacement centre, Strauss, Kilcoyne, IU are the uh, front row options. Mike McCarthy, Reese Ruddock, and then the back subs are Owen Redden, Ian Madigan, Felix Jones, so Gordon Darcy isn't on the bench either. Shane Horgan joins us to talk about this. Shane, just uh, in terms of the most uh, interesting team selection there at centre, you've got two players who are really playing in unnatural positions. Are you surprised? Um, yeah, I am surprised. I know there was uh, talk during the week, uh, Gordon Darcy has been carrying a bit of a knock. Um, I just wonder how much uh, that played into this decision. I'd say probably a good deal. Um, not ideal for um, Henshaw to be playing at 12, which is out of position. Um, it is a vastly uh, different uh, position than uh, 13 or fullback, which he's used to. Now, that said, it's easier to move into 12 um, than it would be for a 12 to move out to 13 or 15. Uh, Jared Payne, I think I think he's he's kind of the favourite for, for Joe at 13, and has been for a while. Um, you know, it's going to be difficult for them against a, an outrageously talented uh, uh, Springbok side, one of the best we've seen in a long time in playing um, a new, more expansive game. Um, I've always said 13 is, is the most difficult position to defend on the field. And um, I think when you don't have a relationship with the 12, or you don't have a 12 that's used to playing that position, it makes things even more difficult. So, you know, we've seen the selection of the team. There are a lot of good players in the team. Uh, but they're combinations that aren't used to playing together and they're coming up against uh, an incredibly strong opposition. So I don't think, you know, looking at, the, at this team, I think it, it's made things a lot easier for Ireland. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, the um, I mean, the opposition you talk about there, there's this brilliant uh, new out half they've had for the last uh, last little while. Jean de Villiers is still there at number 12. Jan Serfontaine is the, is the number 13. And these are guys who are going to, um, provide a hell of a test. Is it is it almost too much to ask uh, Henshaw and Payne to do any more than just survive in this game? Uh, you know, you always want your players to do more than survive. You want them to prosper, but that will have uh, a huge effect. Like, like a lot of back play, it'll have um, a huge amount to do with how the pack compete with South Africa. And we know traditionally, um, and this is not what I, I describe a traditional South African 
uh, team or way of playing. But traditionally, uh, you'll certainly have to compete with them up front or you can forget about it. Now, the problem with this Springbok team is, which is unusual to any of the others in the last number of years, is uh, they are really happy and comfortable to go after you uh, in the wide channels as well. They're prepared to move the ball from deep. They're not just... Um, a crash bang wallop um, team. You said you, you mentioned Serpentine there, uh, a young guy playing with the freedom of a, and inhibitions of a of a young um, a young player, but also obviously with the backing of, of the staff. Um, you've got a, he, he's paired perfectly with John De Villiers. He doesn't make many mistakes. He's very physical. Uh, leads the line of defence. Um, it's going to be a tough day for for the entire team and and certainly for those two guys in the centre. You mentioned Gordon Darcy's knock there, which may have played into this. I mean, uh, is though this still another indication that Darcy's in a battle here? He's he's kind of fought off Luke Marshall in the past for the for the shirt. Is he in a battle now for the rest of his career? Yeah, I think he is in a battle. Yeah, but uh, you know he's never shirked the battle. He's never shirked responsibility of of, uh, of coming up against a pretender, whether to be a young pretender or, uh, in Robbie Henshaw or a little bit older pretender in, in Jared Payne and. Uh, he's had no problem meeting those challenges. I think every time over the last number of years that we've said, you know, there's someone coming along to knock Darcy off his pedestal, generally um, we're, we're a week later down the road saying we need Gordon Darcy back. He's so important to the team. And, uh, you know, I think Gordon Darcy has no intention of retiring anytime soon. Um, he's in great physical shape, looks after himself probably better than anybody else now in Irish rugby. He has that experience and he's really into his his conditioning, his nutrition, and stuff like that. Um, he won't be he won't be lying down, and I fully expect him to see him over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Shane, Mike Ross has been named in the front row, but Joe Schmidt was interesting. I think it was Schmidt during the week. It may have been Les Kiss. One of there was Les Kiss, in fact, who's, who was asked about Ross's fitness, and he said, "Well, listen, he's going to have to put in a, a shift for us here, um, almost whether he's up to it or not, because Rodney Ayew, not that Kiss Kiss said this, but Rodney Ayew is the guy who is backing him up there, and there are a lot of injuries in that position. Would that be a concern that we've got a less than fully fit Mike Ross and uh, and totally inexperienced international replacement?" Yeah, well, of course, it's, you know, it's a concern, but it is what it is. There's not much that Les Kiss or um, or Joe Schmidt can do about that. You know, we're down to the bare bones. Um, and it's not like it maybe in years gone by where um, if we had been in this situation, we would have been down to someone. We would be looking guys at AIL level <laughs> to try and step up. We have actually a good number of props um, and a good number of quality props, but we've just been hit by a plague of injuries. Um, so we have been forced Ireland has been forced into picking Mike Ross probably before you'd want to, to pick him and having Rodney Au on the bench you know again someone who can perform and has played a lot of rugby but not at a very at the highest level um, I would imagine that the thought process there would be uh, guess you know if you can get 50 minutes out of Mike Ross get him to uh, lock down the scrum you know he, he's not he does do a huge amount of carrying around the field anyway and protect them around rook time and defensive system. And then, you know, get uh, Rodney in a little bit later. But the problem is um, he's coming in against the replacement for the Springboks. He'll be fresh, strong, and, you know, be like the start of the match. There's no, there's no sense coming in anymore after um, 50 or 60 minutes for a break. You're coming in from a, from a battle from the start. So it's a really tricky area for Ireland to compete in and it'll be difficult. We've got a lot of good players out there, Shane. Enough to pull off what would probably be a, a surprise victory? Um, I'm not sure if we do. I think we're we're missing players in key areas. I think, you know, you mentioned the prop there. 
you know, you, you probably need against South Africa four props that are firing really well and have good experience and are playing at the top of their games. Um, we don't have that. Um, we have a, a decent back row um, with, without a huge amount of cover. Uh, we've got um, a, you know, a good 9-10 combination. Rob Carney hasn't played much rugby at the big ads for him. I've got two inexperienced uh, centres at this level. Um, I don't know if that's enough to compete against a Springbok team that are you know, they're full of confidence. Um, they're playing a new expansive style ma- matched with their traditional physicality. I, I think I'd be very surprised if Ireland um, get even close to South Africa, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. We were feeling defeatist before, Shane. We certainly are now. Listen, thanks a million. Enjoy the game anyway. Thanks a million. See you. Bye. That doomsday scenario is bad news for one man in particular here in the studio. That's Ken Early, who's attending the game this weekend. Oh, yeah. Don't, you don't get as many rugby games as you would wish, Ken, but you're getting to this one. I am indeed, yeah. Um, I've only been to one rugby game, one Ireland rugby game before, and that was against uh, the All Blacks in like 2007 or something like that. How did that one pan out? Well, we were beaten, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it took a good, solid uh, That was a good, solid pounding, was it? So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But, I mean, I, I, th- I think Ireland are probably going to win. Do you think so, yeah? Don't you think? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> For the reasons uh, just outlined but by Shane Morgan. But we're the home team. We're the home team. We're the Six Nations champions. They're the tourists. We are missing a couple of particularly key guys. When you look at that 15, it's like the, the 22 is starting to a bit shaky. But that, the come anointed. on, a brand new centre partnering uh, uh, partnership neither of whom actually play in the positions very there, Listen, there are a lot of question marks, mm. right? But uh, I think Ken knows just the right amount about rugby. <laughs> I remember I. Being, Joe yeah. Schmidt's a really, really, really good coach. He's the man who's picked this team. So in Joe, he trusts. Yeah, I, 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 I watched Ulster Toulon recently Murph, yeah. with my niece, who's two and a half years of age. Yeah. Um, watching it with her was similar to watching the, to the first ever rugby game I dragged Ken along to which mm. was Leinster against Leicester. Yeah. The only bits that my niece was interested in is when the ball popped out, you know, when the ball was really visible and yeah. she kept pointing saying ball, yeah. ball, ball, right? <laughs> first, this is eerily similar to first that game. First time I, I was watched Ken, you, Ken's <laughs> big complaint at that Leinster-Leicester quarterfinal was you never see the ball. It's just stuck in there. I mean, it's grand when it comes out to the wings, but it's mostly just stuck in rooks and Well, I remember somewhere. Shane Horgan scored in that game. I remember I, I remember that bit. The ball was kind of spun out to the, to the right and he... He touched down in the corner. He chased down Jordan Murphy that game, I remember as well. Jordan Murphy looked really fast for the first little while. And then it was like he was running backwards. That, that was, just hunted him down. That was good. You know, I mean, I enjoyed that. But a lot of the time it was just a bunch of, a heap of lads lying on the ground together. I, 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 you know, I thought... Rugby Ken, you're going to be watching a lot of that this weekend. I mean, it's moved on in some ways, but in a lot of ways, that, there's, there's a lot of that. There's of, still a good amount of... Actually, I remember when I watched it, uh, when I went to the Ireland... Uh, all Blacks game, I was sitting uh, kind of at one of the ends and that actually weirdly was almost a better way to watch the game, I thought. Because, I mean, you know, looking at like literally from behind the mm. goalpost at one end, um, because you just sort of got a better sense of how complicated the movement was of the, well, also the, the kind of height of the passes and so on. Yeah. But the movement of the players and the way that they were kind of interchanging their runs was actually incredible to watch mm. from that angle, which... I mean, usually what you're watching from the other kind of angle on TV or whatever, if you know, well, I'm watching on television. I mean, I know there are people who go to these games. But yeah, I, I hope I'm sitting in one of the end zone. Uh, watching, watching Ireland <laughs> emerge triumphant. Speaking of triumphant, it's time now for a World Series winning, he was pretty much part of the team, US Murph. 
Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Well, I tell you, Brian Murphy, we need to update that jingle there because the giant, <laughs> the Giants have now won the World Series in uh, in Kansas City. Oh, I got the exact great minds think alike. Oh, and I was listening to that jingle, which always I always enjoy very much. You guys did a great job putting that together. But yes, it's outdated. Uh, well, I mean, it's historically accurate for sure. The Giants did win the World Series in Detroit in 2012, but for the third. Thinking time since you guys and I have been chatting in our fun ways weekly. My team went. I'm credit. I'm going to credit you guys because I, my, for 40 years of my life, I was a sad sack baseball fan whose team was never going to win a World Series, and I had to come to philosophical grips with that. And now, since I joined forces with you guys, this is the third flipping time, which is now. Well, now, guys, now we're getting into tall cotton, uh, not just mind-blowing history from a personal perspective, but in American sports history, we're getting into some tall cotton. You know, very few teams have done this. And when you think in, in the history of San Francisco sports, you know, Bill Walsh, who we talk about so much on this show, I always seem to circle back to Bill Walsh, God rest his soul. And his, you know how many Super Bowls he won? He won three, uh-huh. and now the John, yeah Bruce Bochy, the uh, the big headed, humble genius that runs the Giants, has now equaled Bill Walsh in championships in San Francisco. So a lot to chew on, guys. A lot to chew on, Brian. You told us a couple of weeks ago, uh, just around the start of the series, that you were never going to get the feeling back that you got that first time four or five years ago, the first time in fifty years or whatever it was. But it went down pretty dramatically. How good was the feeling in Kansas City? Boy, it's a great question and a great point. And I think this could, you know, a lot of sports fans could relate to this, even if they don't know baseball. And that is, you know, what, how to process when your team wins a championship for the first time. I always go back to, I always go back to Claire Hurling, because that's my, uh, my boy, Brian Kalu in the, in the windswept hill of Tulla County Clare. What, when they won that hurling title, what it meant to them, that was like a Chicago Cubs type thing. So that's how I felt in 2010. You know, your first, your St. Pauli girl, right? You never forget your first. Anybody who's got a kid, your first kid, all those analogies that you drag out. And then your second feels like your second kid. You know, you've been through it before, but it's no, it's majestic on its own right. It's got its own personality. Now that I have two boys, which is another thing that's happened since I've worked with you guys, mm-hmm. and that is he's got his own personalities and quirks, and you endear, you love him for his own reasons. And now here comes a third and now you start getting back into memories of being a 49 fan and how you process the three different ones. And, you know, how I guess the Kobe Laker fan feel because he's won five. Or Derek Jeter Yankee fans because he's won five. So, yeah, and this one was different. And, guys, when it comes to history, I always love talking history with you guys. The Giants won game seven. Well, first of all, any World Series that goes to a game seven is a beautiful thing. And it showed in the TV ratings. We talked about baseball's decline on the TV uh, market. Well, Game 7 brought back the old-fashioned numbers. I think they had 25 million people watch, which is a really good, really strong number 
watching Game 7. So America got back involved, which was great. But also just Game 7 brings with it that drama that, you know, it's the winner-take-all. And the Giants won it as a road team, which is extremely difficult to do. In fact, hadn't been done since the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. And for anybody old enough to remember them, raise your hand, that's me. That was an epic American sports team because Willie Stargell was the old man and they played We Are Family by Sister Sledge. That was like the, the total link of a song and a team. The Pirates played that as their song in the clubhouse, and that was the disco era. And so everybody remembers the We Are Family Pirates. For the Giants to equal that, to be the first team to do it since that, just adds that that awesome history to it. So, yeah, this one is special for its own reasons, and also because of the, the history of a guy that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the snot rocket man himself, Madison Bumgarner. Oh. Guys, he's blown up so big, he went on to Jimmy Fallon this week. He's doing the Tonight Show. So uh, that's where we're at. Yeah, in believe in between leaving mucus all around the hills of his his hometown, Brian, he, he's winning you guys World Series. And the big the big story here, uh, as far as I can tell, was that and you have to relate this to us, Brian, because uh, you know we 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 don't have any sports really that are as relentless as baseball, where you're playing game after game, night after night. So everybody just well, there are people who are rested, but usually if a big game comes along. Everybody just plays it. Whereas in this case, in, in baseball, it's not the case. But he managed to play a couple of games back to back while presumably his body was breaking down. Right. It's all about pitching, right? Players, everyday players, you know, our hero Buster Posey, the catcher, or Pablo Sandoval, the third baseman, the Kung Fu Panda, as we call him. All those those guys can play every day. It's the act of pitching a baseball, which um, you guys check it out. Physically, physics speaking. The human body was not meant to throw a baseball. It does very unnatural things to your shoulder and your elbow, which is why so many pitchers have had to have their elbows reconstructed along the way in what they now call Tommy John surgery, named after a famous pitcher who was the first guy to have it done. And, you know, even the guy that Bumgarner is being compared with, Sandy Koufax, is a legendary name in American sports because of the things he did on short rest in the World Series. He had to retire at age 30 because his elbow and his arm was completely shot. So throwing a baseball is no joke. It, is, it places a tremendous amount of torque on you, which is why pitchers, if they do try to pitch on short rest, are generally ineffective and prone to injury. So usually a starting pitcher, when he throws a complete game shutout, like Madison Bumgarner did on Sunday night two Sundays ago, to win game five, there's no way he's going to come back on Wednesday and pitch five innings of shutout relief in Game 7 with the pressure. That's just asking a lot of the human body. I mean, you can get out there and try, but you're probably not going to be as effective as you are because your arm just hasn't built up that resilience yet. Well, don't tell Madison Bumgarner that. 25 years old, and the Giants turned to him. He was basically a one-man wrecking crew. He was like, you know, in the American mythology, uh, Paul Bunyan is, you know, the, the man who strode across the Midwest with his big ox mm-hmm. and, his, and his axe and chopped out all the forests in the Midwest. He's the giant of American lore. Basically, that's what Baumgartner was in this World Series. I mean, you take the two best teams in baseball, the San Francisco Giants and the Kansas City Royals, 50 players on the two teams, all great players in their own right, one guy gigantic above them all, and that's Madison Bumgarner, because what he's done now, he threw more innings in any postseason than any pitcher in the history of baseball. He, there's a stat called ERA, which is earned run average, which is how many runs you're, how many runs you allow every time you pitch per nine innings. 
His is un- if you if anything around three is great, anything around two is otherworldly, anything around one is uh, intergalactic. His ERA was zero point two five. It's the best ERA in the history of a hundred and ten World Series for anybody who's thrown a minimum of twenty five innings. So yeah, I mean we're talking Paul Bunyan, we're talking uh, you know Madison Bumgarner, <laughs> we're talking. He's not only that, but I talked to you guys about his country personality from Hickory, North Carolina. And, you know, he never went to college. He came straight from high school to the pros. Guys, when the Giants did their World Series parade down Market Street, which is, you know, here we are, San Francisco, progressive, urban, liberal bastion of city slickers, always trying to be ahead of the curve with our progressive politics. We're the farthest thing from a country town, a cow town. He, the San Francisco Police Department asked Madison Bumgarner, he was in the last float, is there anything we can do to make you more comfortable today? And he said, well, yeah. Can I ride one of your horses down Market Street? <laughs> and he, he wanted to ride a horse down the parade instead of being in a, in a bus. And they said, well, yes, they bought him on a, on a horse, and they took a bunch of pictures of him. And then the chief of police got scared that the horse might buck him and, and injure his shoulder, and he'd never live it down. So he said, could you please not ride the horse down uh, Market Street? We just had Bruce Bochy, the Giants manager, on our show, and he said, shoot, Madison Bumgarner is so strong, I don't know – Getting bucked from a horse would hurt him at all. He also said it might be more humane if Bumgarner carried the horse down Market Street. So we're, we're, we're giddy with our uh, hyperbole oh, yeah. and our mythology here, guys. Brian, I'm telling you, that, that cop had to be more negligent about his job, like the Red Sox cop that time, who was too busy celebrating to help the player <laughs> help the player get up and injured himself. But I just want to ask you just lastly, your own role in those celebrations. We, we looked on Twitter and we see there were, there were photos of a a U.S. Murph uh, a float going along there on the parade? Uh, you know what? In 2010, they asked us to be in, a, in the float, and I was utterly embarrassed. I said, what, are you kidding me? I, I didn't feel the ball. I didn't, I'm not in the parade. And our boss said, yes, you are. KNBR is the flagship station of the Giants. We're promoting our product. You're going to do it. So I was like, okay. And I knew it was kind of, I was a little embarrassed to do it. Once you do it, and once you kind of get over that incredible embarrassment that you're in the parade with these players, you're like, this is totally cool, man. <laughs> this is awesome. So as it turns out, the radio station and the broadcasters are part of the mosaic, you know? So we broadcast from the float. That's our excuse, is that we're actually working. Oh, and so we actually engineered a broadcast and we had microphones, and we rolled down Market Street broadcasting the parade. So uh, that was my job. And I hesitate to turn you guys on to this because you can have too much fun with this at my expense. Mm-hmm. But I also um, whipped out my Samsung Galaxy phone and rolled my voice recorder during the ninth inning in Kansas City. And, um, and we played it the next day. And you forget just how much like a nine-year-old schoolgirl mm-hmm. you sound when your team is winning the World Series. You can find that on the KMBR.com page under the Murph and Mac page podcast. And I imagine you guys might have a couple chuckles if you if you listen to it because I know you kind of laugh at my enthusiasm sometimes, but I honestly I think I take it to a new level of um, yeah I think nine year old schoolgirl is about what I would describe uh, my description of the Giants winning the World Series. Brian, we appreciate your honesty and your your candor here. We will uh, we will endeavor to treat this um, this sensitive material in in that in that exact uh, in that exact manner in a sensitive manner. But listen, congratulations on another World Series. We'll try to help you out again next year, and we'll chat to you next week. Hey, 
You guys have done it best. You brought me three. You've done your work. Back to the NFL next time, boys. All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Bye. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about. Um, yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it comes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Ah, it's always a chief of police getting in the way of good, solid fun. Baumgartner, a hero, World Series hero, just wants to ride a horse through Market Street. He can, he can, and should, and indeed simple, must. Like yourself, he he's a man of simple, know. simple rural tastes. I actually saw him on Jimmy Fallon uh, a couple of nights ba- ba- ago. Baumgartner, yeah, just went online to see what Mad Bum's been up to recently. Uh, he is, he's a man of few words, a uh, man of few words, but uh, few words, many snot rockets, according to US America. Yeah, We've and like talked my, about that enough at this stage. Yeah, and like like myself, uh, he, you know, he likes his beer cold, his TV loud, and his trucks enormous. Owen. <laughs> He likes enormous trucks. We've dug up that clip. Brian, I don't know, Brian is landing himself in his own trap here, so we can't... The onus is on us to play this now. Mm. Here was Brian Murphy calling the shots to himself in Kansas. All right, Paul and Nick. It's a 2-2 count. To Salvador Perez. Madison Bumgarner's on the hill. It's 10-20 Central Time. Alex Gordon's on third. Two outs, bottom of the ninth. Giants three, Royals two. Game 7, 2014 World Series. Bumgarner kicks and throws. It's popped up. It's popped up. It's popped up. It's popped up. Go get Panda might have it. Panda might have it. Panda might have it. Panda might have it. Panda has it. The Giants win the World Series. The Giants win the World Series. The Giants win the World Series. Bumgarner being mobbed. Bumgarner hugging. Bumgarner did it. The Giants have won the World Series for the third time in five years on a Wednesday night in Kansas City. Madison Bumgarner. Madison Bumgarner and the Giants have become World Series champs. The Giants are World Series champs. What a sight to I don't know for... I think Brian was unfairly uh, unfairly judged in some ways in that clip. I just think repetition was the key there. Yeah. He's really getting it across yeah. that this guy has it. He's got it. Yeah, got I mean... It. It's it, pop it, ball, it, fly it's, ball. It's kind of a, uh, nearly a, uh, an homage to the Giants win the pennant, yeah. which is the age-old, uh, what was the guy's name? Thompson, the shot heard around the world. Yeah. But that's when they were Bobby Thompson I'm going to go with. But, uh, Bobby Thompson, you'd be absolutely right there on. Um, so maybe that's what he was going for, you know? Uh, Brian's a student of the game, a historian of the game, if you like. Uh, so maybe that's what he was going for. It wasn't that embarrassing. I mean, not at all. No, I mean, if I was taping myself at various sporting events <laughs> that I was attending but not commentating Just on. Just cursing at the players. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's it's three curses for every one yeah. clean word. Oh, Driscoll, you're used... Oh, great try. Great try. Brilliant. What the... Oh, good try. Yeah, that, that's basically it. So, I mean, I, that, that's that's pretty good. Today's football show is already out. Ken, what's in it? That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I like to stay alive. Oh, I'd like to go to I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down Twelfthfield, and we'll see them. What you're doing down here? You're showing me, man. Have you ever thought about the future, Owen? Not right now. But have you ever thought considered what might lie ahead? What I've, might come next? Yeah, I've, 
I've thought about it from time to time. It's what he's talking about there. I'll speak for on his behalf. Is the uh, the Back to the Future flying skateboard? Oh, okay. That's basically the extent. Of, uh, on uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is that's basically the full extent of Owen's imagination on this particular topic. Yeah. Well, 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 because because that's very that's very much been the focus of our already recorded in the past uh, football. Podcast to be listened to in the future by the people we're trying to promote it to right now. Unless they've already listened to the football show. Yeah, in which case, you know what's on the football show. We don't need to tell you. <laughs> but, but yeah, for those who haven't yet, kid, you know, because because we could we could have just talked about the Champions League. We could have talked about Man City losing. We could have talked about um, Liverpool uh, running up the white flag um, at the Bernabeu. We could have talked about Arsenal throwing away a three 0 lead. We could have talked about Chelsea and Maribor, but. Instead, we talked about the future. We don't want to talk about the past. We want to talk about the future. Augmented reality, accelerated obsolescence, consumable chunks of content. Mm, that should get him, get him running. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got an interview with <laughs> we've got an interview with Damien Kamal, Damien Kamal, Kamali, um, the former uh, Liverpool and uh, Spurs. You had some verbal jousting with with this man. Well, I was just ask him uh, how he's getting on. You know. And how he to reacted to the criticisms he got in, in charge of Liverpool. He said he didn't. Well, we don't, I don't give away the whole interview, but he's, but you said you know you were under the cosh there. People were slagging you off for signing Andy Carroll mm. and Jordan Henderson, who hadn't worked out at that stage. How did you feel about that? And he said, "Oh, well, I don't read the newspapers." And she said, "Come on." Come on. And he said, "Seriously, I, I don't read them." And, and you came back with, "But how do you stay up to date with football?" And he said. Football doesn't happen in the newspapers. That's true. Yeah. Another ominous phrase. We have too many ominous phrases and people involved in sport in recent years to the, to the effect that what we do mm. is obsolete. I mean, I don't like to hear that. Yeah. No, uh, there's, there's or insiders. irrelevant, maybe, yeah. There's insiders and there's outsiders. I mean, the, what's the phrase? Those who, those who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, we're in the probably latter category. Yeah. That was a good chat with Kamali, so have a listen to that one. We're delighted to be joined right now in studio by world-famous skateboarder turned entrepreneur Tony Hawk. Tony, great to talk to you, first of all. Thanks very much for coming in. Of course, thank you. Uh, you're here for the Web Summit, although I, I see by your Twitter account you found a bit of time to skate in Bushy Park yesterday. Uh, can I ask you, which world do you now feel more comfortable in, sport or the tech business world? <laughs> uh, well, skateboarding is always my most comfortable platform, for sure. So um, getting to go do that yesterday was like uh, kind of finding my home quickly. And then uh, I enjoy it, though. I enjoy the, the technology, and I enjoy seeing what new – you know what new technologies come down the pipe new apps new um techniques new direction you know this is really the future of all of it what were the skill level and maybe more important enthusiasm levels like of the irish skateboarders there in bushy park oh there were a few guys that were really good <laughs> yeah i mean uh, a couple a couple of guys i was very impressed by so it was great to see the local scene too because it's still very strong here can you take us back to your very early days uh, and tell us maybe why did you how did skateboarding come into your life um, through my older brother, my, he was a surfer and he skated in the seventies and, um, and he gave me one of his old boards and I started doing it with some friends of mine in the neighborhood and then eventually found my way to the skate park. And when I first went to the skate park, that's when I knew I wanted to do that for as long as I could, because I saw, I literally saw people flying out of swimming pools and I thought that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Why was, why was it that that fired your imagination rather than the more traditional American sports, baseball, football, those kind of things? Um, I really enjoyed that. Well, I enjoyed the individual aspect. I enjoyed the, that you didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to show up to practice at every certain, you know, and rely on the team or, or 
or be told by the coaches what to do. I like the sort of artistic element to it, but to to be honest, I just love the adrenaline rush. I love the the idea that you could physically fly by riding this piece of wood. Did it suit your personality? What was your personality as a say twelve? Um, I was very energetic, <laughs> you know, and and very. Um, Determined, and so yeah, definitely suited my personality. Did you feel at that stage, Shoni, like you were in those early days, like you were part of something big, like some sort of a movement that everyone was involved in, or was this just sort of you and your brother and a few other eccentrics doing their own thing? Uh, yeah, it felt much more underground. It was it was definitely a sort of counterculture movement. Um, I, I didn't think of something. I, it didn't seem like we were creating something huge. It just felt like we were doing something different, and and we all really appreciated the intricacies and the difficulties of it, but I didn't think that we were like creating some brand new uh, sport by any means. There was no path that you could see at that time towards being a professional, making a living out of it. Not making a living, no. no. The only path to being a professional was that you moved up a category in competition. Yeah. You've had a career that's taken you to the White House, to, onto the Simpsons, maybe even a greater honor uh, than being in the White House. Has there been one moment, either of those moments or anything else, where, which has just stopped you in your tracks and almost had you thinking back to that kid that you were and how far you've come. Oh, every day. Really? I mean, yeah, honestly, like every every new opportunity is is amazing to me and I'm very thankful to still be doing it and to still get to, I mean, you know, I, to, to come to Dublin to speak is something I never imagined doing even without my skateboard. Um, but the fact that the skateboarding has led me to these places and these opportunities is crazy, you know, I mean... Um, just like in the last year, I've been to Cambodia, Ethiopia, and I've seen skateboarding um, growing in these places. Really? Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. The speaking side of it, is that not something you would have done when you were younger, something you would have seen yourself doing? I would have never seen myself doing that, no. I, I would very much thought I'd be behind the scenes doing something more computer tech for sure, but um, not so out front. The... Uh the White House experience, is it true that you skateboarded through the halls? <laughs> yeah, yes, that's true. <laughs> was that, a, was that a, a planned, I don't know, if stunt is No, it wasn't planned at all. I, I, um, I brought my, I was invited to a White House event. I brought my skateboard because whenever I travel without it, people ask me where it is. That you know, it's, really, That's yeah. the question. And so I brought it thinking I'm not going to get caught in that situation. And, and then I found myself in this empty hallway and um, I just skated down it and had the guy that was, was, was sort of um, guiding me around take a picture. Um, didn't think anything of it, really. You know, I thought it was just a cool thing. And then it, it kind of blew up on the Internet, on social media, and, you know, it was very polarizing to people. Was it some people felt? Well, yeah, they thought it was, it was disrespectful, disrespectful or okay. that it was damaging some way. And I thought, I'm celebrating why I'm here. They invited me here because I'm a professional skateboarder. Why wouldn't I skate through here? Yeah, that does seem a little strange. Did, did no security men had an issue with you or, or anything? Uh, the they sort of, um, they, they didn't want to say they approved it, but they didn't want to say that I was in trouble for it. They okay. just sort of ignored <laughs> it. It's funny. I, is that one of, the, one of the parts of a sport like skateboarding that appeals that you can, you can almost act like a kid like that in, in the White House. You, oh, you, sure. Just, yeah, I mean, skateboarding and, is the best way to not grow up. Really, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's funny. I don't know if, that, if, I, if I'm reaching too much into this, but is it almost that reaction that you talk about that was polarizing? Is, is that indicative in a way of, uh, of skateboarding in that some people would find that, well, I, I think that sounds quite funny, just a, a bit of fun, whereas other people, you know, in ways it hasn't always been um, accepted maybe by the mainstream. And there have been, I don't know if opponents is the right word, but there have been people that just don't get it and maybe never will. Yeah, I think so. But I think that, that attitude has changed quite a bit over the years. Um, I think that 
definitely it's more mainstream. It has it's more accepted mainstream. Um, there are there are parents that encourage their kids to skate now. There are plenty of facilities, there, and there are casual fans of skating. That is something we never experienced when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, the only fans of skateboarding were the ones who really did it themselves. Now there's people who have experienced it through video games, have experienced it on TV, and they're happy to watch it from their couch, and they even understand some of it. You know, that that to me is is the biggest. That's the tipping point for us. How has that happened? Because I'm sure anybody else involved in sports that usually fly under the radar would love that story. They'd love the fact that it came from a very low base and has become this huge phenomenon. Is there one particular I think, uh, thing I think happened? there was sort of a perfect storm in the late 90s of television coverage through the X Games, through commercials and video games. Mm. Um, and, and as those things sort of rose it permeated the pop culture and, and suddenly skateboarding was right on the forefront as, as is, I mean, it's bigger than baseball in terms of participants really? these days in, in the U S and supposedly that's our national pastime. That's extraordinary. Really, yeah. Isn't it compared yeah. to considering where baseball was at even up to certainly 20, 30 years right. ago? Yeah. Incredible. The, you mentioned video games a couple of times there, Tony Hawk's pro skater being the, at the forefront of that. Did that game almost take on? Has it almost taken on a life of its own over the years? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean it, that that is um, it changed my life. You Did know, it? That, yeah. yeah it, it, uh, it allowed me to do things I never imagined outside of skateboarding, within skateboarding, um, and it's um, yeah. Did, I mean, is that just because of the sorry to cut across? But is that just because of the the amount of people that opened you up to? What, yeah, to yeah. The, the recognition factor and and the appreciation. You know, it really inspired a generation of kids to either start skating or to watch it more closely and to, to appreciate it more. Um, and you know, even now, like we are, uh, it's like 15 years later and, and still doing video games. <laughs> How often do you play it yourself? Uh, well, I'm in the development phase of a new game right now, so playing okay. it quite a bit. How good are you at the video game? I'm good. Let's let's just say I'm good enough to finish all the games without cheating. <laughs> but there are definitely kids out there that could school me. How does that subversive element of the sport fit with the corporate side of it? You've done ads with McDonald's, for example, a massive corporate giant in America. Is there uh, is there a dichotomy there that you had, have had to think about over the years? Uh yeah, for sure. But but I've been doing it so long that. I've definitely learned what works and, and what will benefit skateboarding better. And so um, I was one of the first ones to do that, to sort of go outside the just endemic sponsors and to to go do more mainstream. And so I was the first one to catch flack for it. But I think that as people saw what good it did for the industry and what good it did for the sport, they, they backed off a bit. But, um, you know, someone had to, had to try. So is that the deal you just decided at one point that you have to make? You, it's all well and good trying to have this idealistic view of it, but really to improve the sport, you yeah, need the money and, from... Yeah, but to me, to be honest, I never really coveted skateboarding like that. I never thought of it like, oh, we have to keep this, you know, as our own pure thing. Um, I always wondered why it wasn't more popular, why kids, you know, that I grew up with, um, that I grew up with in my neighborhood didn't understand it, didn't appreciate it, didn't want to do it. So I never had that view of it where it was like, you know, we got to keep this away from the, the hands of the mainstream. I was like, why don't, more people understand this. Why? Why can't the people that have devoted their lives to it finally benefit from all that hard work? Have most people involved in skateboarding, the more hardcore guys from your era when you were younger, have they all come along on that ride? Have, have they seen the benefit of that? Is there a still? A yeah, I definitely. Um, they haven't thought that you maybe. And, and, sold, and some, you, you but some people are still and, purists. You know, they don't want to have those kind of sponsors. They don't believe in that. But but they don't hold it against me by any means. The um, 
the element of danger in a sport like yours, and uh, I'm not again, it, it can be done. Every sport has a certain element of this, but. I watched the 30 for 30 birth of big air, uh, which Matt, which you contributed to. Matt Hoffman was the centerpiece of a great, a great skateboarder. And what really struck me about that was that he's constantly trying to push the limits of what he's doing, but it's the effect on his family. You see his family watching him taking on these crazy jumps yeah. and they seem, they just seem really worried about it. Is that something that you've had in your own life? Other people's concern? Uh, yeah, a bit for sure. Well, my parents for one, I mean, when I was young, I, I went through a string of injuries. I had a couple of concussions and knocked my teeth out a few times. And, and, you know, they were concerned, but they could see that I was determined and that, uh, you know, I've learned, I learned from those mistakes the hard way, but I learned from it. Um, but as you grow older, you know, you, you have to define your own limits. And, and I definitely have changed my style of skating over the last, say, five, 10 years because of my age and because I don't want to go through some, you know, life-threatening uh, injury or be out out of commission for six months. Like, I, I do want to be there for my family. And I do want to. So there's more of a mortality um, realization than anything, but some people just don't have that. And and to be honest, like, Matt Hoffman has never had it, and his family, you know, especially his wife, has always known that about him. You know what I mean? It's not right. like suddenly he's taking these giant risks. It's like, no, he's always been there. And he has toned it down quite a bit. <laughs> it didn't look like it in the movie, but... Yeah, he, uh, he has these days. You know, to be honest, he was in a really horrific car crash right. um, a few years ago. This this uh, giant tractor trailer ran a stop sign and, and totaled his car. And that was the worst injury he's ever had. And I think he's toned it down since then. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever had fear? Um, yeah, definitely trying new moves, you know, or, or if I have an idea of something and I think like considering, um, I, I did the first, uh, full loop ramp yeah, going all the way around when I had that idea, it seemed feasible. It seemed real. And then when, but you know, drawing it and designing it. And then when it was violently, when it was finally in front of me, it was panic. Yeah. Cause it was like, I've, I've created this thing. I have to complete it. You know, I've, cre- I've, I've asked, I've, I've sort of commissioned this thing to be built. No one else is going to try it. I'm the one that has to do this. Um, I remember being very frightened. That How day. did you conquer the fear? Uh, I just had to believe that, you know, the physics of it would work. And I uh, put, some, put some big padding in the middle of it and started trying it. And you got there. Got there, yeah. Got there in the end. Listen, the, you've been great to come in, Tony. Really appreciate it. And the web summit, it's all about where technology is taking us in the future. The big question that we want to ask is, when will the hoverboard from Back to the Future <laughs> finally become a reality for us all? Well, this uh, this company is, is Hendo. They have created an actual working hoverboard that is you know, just a few centimeters off the ground, but it, it hovers and you can stand on it. So I'm going to go ride it next week. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, but they just had a huge Kickstarter success with it um, a few weeks ago. Okay. So, so we're, we're almost there. We're, well, when you see it, I don't know if you'll think that, but it's start. Yep. Listen, yeah. Tony, you have to get back to the web summit there. It's been brilliant yeah. having you in the studio. Thanks so much for All your right, time. Thank you. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt whooping was coming at the back. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane, 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 Tony is born. I ran Parker is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. 
I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said, I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Just want to go back to one of the elements of that chat with Tony Hawk there and mm. that is the countercultural element of what was originally a very much a fringe not even a fringe sport like skateboarding yeah. uh, and how that dovetails with McDonald's and big business Tony's argument is dovetails quite nicely thank you very much I've made lots of money for myself I've promoted this sport not everyone inside the sport really likes the whole, um, you know, McDonald's links and so forth yeah. but this is the way you, yeah, this is the way it has to be you don't have to he didn't even, when I put it to him about this idea of losing its soul, he said, that's not the way I looked at it in the first place. Other people did look at it like that, but yeah. it, didn't, it doesn't seem like he has too sentimental a view of what it is or too uh, pie-in-the-sky view of what it is that he's doing. Well, I mean, it's, to my knowledge, Tony Hawk isn't, a, isn't some kind of a communist, <laughs> and he's not some kind of a, of a spiritualist either. He's an American, and that's what you call um, a capitalist hegemony, I think. Uh, every single... Uh, form of human activity gets converted into it has a dollar value, and gets you know the most most successful exponents of it will. Well, it's not even you know it's, it's a question of anything will be turned into a kind of contest in which the successful people are going to uh, pay themselves or get paid a lot of money. Mm. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of doing anything? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just at the summit there of the last couple of days, you know, listening to a lot of. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was kind of sports-centered stuff, but it was a lot of stuff around sport, technical um, Yeah, the stuff, stuff we were listening to was sports-centered because we were in the we were, sports we went summit. To the sports summit yeah. But, you know, it's all, it all comes back to money. Every single aspect of this ultimately is talking about how can we all make more money. I mean, that's, it's kind of the sole focus. Well, that's partly why I enjoyed David Epstein's chat. It wasn't really about that at all. Was well, that's, that's true. It was actually. about how do you, how do you become... Uh, great sports person. In order that you can make a hell of a lot of money, <laughs> no, but, you know, uh, get millions of followers on Twitter, exploit that um, that global uh, fan reach uh, with your sponsors, and uh, and and I suppose ultimately have a lot of money because what else would you do? His Epstein's point was that I, I like this. I like when you have a vague notion of something. Mm. I've always had this vague idea, a strongly held but vague idea that it's really good for a kid to play all sports when they're younger, as many sports as possible, and specialise later on, even if the specialisation is 40, 50, but don't make them specialise at 8 or 9 yeah. or 10, uh, ideally when they're 17, 18. Um, the 10,000 hours rule, uh, or the interpretation of it by, wasn't it Gladwell, amongst mm-hmm. others, laid waste to that and said you have to put in as many hours of practice as possible, that is how you'll get really good at one thing, and if you're practicing some other sport that's clearly taking away from the hours that you can practice your primary sport. David Essien says, well, that interpretation is nonsense. In fact, every other facet of sports science would lead you to believe that that's not the case. And he says that a lot of the sports people now in the US, the vast majority are coming from small towns where you can't specialise. If you're brilliant at sport in a small town, you're playing them all. You're going to be put on the basketball team, you're going to be put on the American football team, you're going to be playing baseball, all those sports. Whereas in the big cities, it's a lot more likely that you will actually get 
almost be asked to specialise if you're particularly good and you can pretty easily mm. get away with not playing other sports and you're not going to be dragged out of as much. Those guys aren't making it anymore. Even he, he said it's a myth that the big basketball players come from the inner city or urban type backgrounds that was the case it's not anymore so I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I think our, our, I'd like to hear Epstein putting some some meat on the bones of my argument Murphy. yeah well I mean I think uh, you know in this country their specialisation was just the way it happened for years and years and years that uh, every if you're from the country there was a, there may not have been a football team within 20 miles there may not have been a rugby team within 50 miles I grew up playing just Gaelic football, not even hurling, not uh, not uh, soccer in an organised fashion, and not rugby that's at funny. all. That's funny. Then it's the opposite way around exactly, to me. Yeah, it, yeah uh, exactly. Whereas, well, not that I was right in the middle of a city, but I was in a Dublin suburb, and all sports were available. Were available. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that has changed, and that's that's obviously good. Epstein is saying it's good, and your vague notion is one hundred percent right. In that, why would you why would you want to specialise just from a pure enjoyment point of view? Play them all and find out which one you enjoy. And then specialise, and I think if if that specialisation happens at twenty four, twenty five, I don't think that's a big deal either. Well, that's, what, that's what he was saying, you know. Essentially, that that people who end up getting really good at something will have tried lots of different things, um, and that's how they find what they're really good at. Yeah, it's kind of eventually you you, you find okay, this is actually what I should do, mm. you know. And then that's that sort of age of specialisation he seems to be suggesting was happening between twelve and fifteen. Yeah, um, but before then, you should be as general as possible. Yeah, and I mean it's it's absurd the way uh, uh, sport has been in this country. That say for me, Goalie were playing in Ireland hurling finals, playing uh, you know we're like one of the top teams in hurling in the late eighties and nineties. I'm from Galway, and I never picked up a hurley in a competitive environment mm-hmm. in my entire life. Yeah, that's strange. You know, and I I actually was one of the few people in. Uh, in Milton that actually played hurling in our backyards just because we had hurlies and we liked it. But there was the idea of organised hurling was absolutely, uh, you know, an alien concept. Yep. And goal is this huge county that's divided by a railway line, south of which you play hurling, north of which you play football, and never the twain shall meet. It's bizarre. I did think it was quite interesting, actually. He said, essentially, we're not producing... Well, this is the United States. Epstein was saying we're not, we don't produce athletes in the big cities anymore. So his... Uh, he produced some statistics which appear to show that if you were from one of the cities in the United States with a population of, I think, five million plus, the chances of uh, the chances of a person from such a city becoming a top class athlete in various disciplines, according to whatever standard it was, was something like point zero six percent of the of the normal chance. Whereas if you were from a small town. Uh, something like eighteen times the the normal chance of. So the best thing is if you want to, um, if you are kind of an Earl Woods figure who wants your uh, kids to grow up to be uh, top sports people, is move to a small town but not more than a hundred thousand inhabitants, like the one Tony Hawk came from, I think. Oh, mm. Carlsbad. San Diego County. Good news from Tony there that the hoverboard which you referred to earlier on in the show, Murph, is on the way. He's testing it out next week. And not a moment too soon. It doesn't sound like he's totally convinced that it's going to be quite back to the future standard. Beyond even Owen McDevitt's imagination. All right. Uh, Owen McDevitt, we'll now wrap up the show. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks, uh, Kieran, and thanks, Owen. Thanks uh, to the two of you and thanks very much for listening to have a bit of a listen to the football show. If you get a chance there, Damien Molly was the big interviewee on that one. Take care and check out the website as well, secondcaptains.com. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.